Hey friends, I'm Faringir. I'm so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope you're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay friends, let's begin. Welcome back, my OOBT ears. I'm so grateful that you've joined me here to dig into the pages of God's Word, to open our Bibles back up to the book of Exodus together. And as I've said many times before, it's so exciting that you tuned in because I believe that you're here with me today on purpose by our Heavenly Father who wants to speak to all of us through His words as found in the book of Exodus. A book meaning the road out, and my oh my has it been a very intense road out of Egypt and trip to Mount Sinai so far. If you recall, we ended our OOBT episode in Exodus chapters 16 through 18 with the Israelites only one month out after leaving the land of Egypt and moving forward from the Red Sea crossing when that complaining began. Pretty dramatic, seemingly over-the-top complaining for people who had just witnessed a miracle the size of the parting of the Red Sea and walking through on dry ground. How quickly they forgot. But if you recall from our studies in that episode, we too are the Israelites, forgetful and prone to complain. Ouch. We then moved on to all kinds of provision by God, manna and quail from heaven, water from the rock, a victory over the Amalekites, and even some much-needed advice from Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. We find that Moses had assumed responsibility for resolving conflict, and on some days was listening to complaints from sunrise to sunset, while many Israelites waited in line for hours upon hours as well. Jethro said, Moses, you can't continue to do this. You will wear yourself out. Teach the people how God would want them to live. Organize them into groups and appoint capable leaders over the groups to solve the minor problems and bring only the difficult cases to you. In today's episode, we will see how God responds to the need for laws for those judges who are assigned that role after the suggestion of Moses' father-in-law. Here we see the beginnings of a judicial system established by God. Oh goodness, don't you find it interesting to see how Jethro's recommendations came right before the Ten Commandments and the subsequent laws given in our readings? Our God of details and wisdom is leading the stories we see developing on the pages of Scripture in a million different ways. Sounds a lot like those cross-references we discussed in the last episode of OOBT, right, my friends? Let's not get ahead of ourselves, though, shall we? Before we actually get into our studies of the Ten Commandments and so on, how about we refresh our memory about the timeline we are currently studying in? I don't know about you, but I think I've previously thought the book of Exodus covered all 40 years they wandered in the wilderness but as we are discovering, I was wrong. And maybe you were wrong too. (laughs) I will be sure to include Moses' timeline that I came across in my previous research. It has been so helpful to me. If you recall from that image, the Israelites' travels out of Egypt took place over the course of two months. We will soon begin our studies at the end of those two months, when they arrived at the base of Mount Sinai, where the Israelites will be for 11 months. This time frame includes the remaining chapters of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and then just into the beginning chapters of the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 10 to be exact. It is then in Numbers that we discover they will leave this camp and the wandering in the wilderness begins. Goodness, eye-opening and perspective-shifting for sure, am I right, my oob tears? Okay, since it has been a while since we were last in the book of Exodus, let's just do a brief recap and even a bit of teaser as to where we're headed from Jen Wilkins' 10 Words to Live By book in a section titled, A Feast in the Wilderness. Before God speaks the law to Israel from the top of Sinai, He speaks deliverance to Moses from the burning bush. Israel was in the throes of bitter toil. 
400 years in Egypt had rendered them slaves with no hope for freedom. But the bush speaks. Yahweh makes known his plan of great rescue. Moses is to go to Pharaoh with the request, Exodus 3.18, Please let us go in three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Let us go. It will become the refrain for the next 16 chapters of Exodus. Seven times Moses will bring the words of God to Pharaoh, Let my people go, that they may serve me, that they may make a feast to me in the wilderness. A feast in the wilderness. An act of worship. Something that was before out of the question. Bitter servitude to Pharaoh had made blessed service to God an impossibility for Israel. How could they serve both God and Pharaoh? Obedient worship to the king of heaven cannot be offered by those enslaved in the kingdom of Pharaoh. Let us go. But Pharaoh is a stubborn master. Why would he release them to serve another master when they are serving him? With ten plagues, Yahweh breaks the rod of Pharaoh and delivers his children through passageways of blood and water. Ten great labor pains in a birth. The servants of Pharaoh find themselves reborn into true identity as servants of God. Let the feasting begin. But hunger and thirst are their first companions, and they grumble against God. He meets their needs with living water and food from heaven, a foretaste of the provision awaiting them in Canaan. And at last they draw near to the foot of the mountain, the place God has called them to for the purpose of worship, sacrifice, and feasting. God descends in thunder and lightning and gives them not the feast they expect, but the feast they need. He gives them the law. The law of Pharaoh they know by heart, but the law of Yahweh is at best a distant memory to them after four hundred years in Egypt. He does not give it when they are in Egypt, for how could they serve two masters? No. Instead, he waits, graciously giving it at the point that they are finally able to obey. Come to the feast. Come famished by the law of Pharaoh to feast on the law of the Lord. Come taste the law that gives freedom. Many years later, Jesus would speak to his followers of their own relationship to the law. No one can serve two masters, be born again by blood and water, hunger and thirst for righteousness. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus shows himself to be the true and better Moses, leading us to the foot of Mount Zion to trade the law of sin and death for the law of love and life. It is for freedom that Christ, the true and better Moses, has set you free. So as we were reminded by Jen Wilkin in the excerpts I just read, part one of Exodus is all about the Israelites' rescue from slavery in Egypt. And as we will soon see from chapter 19 on, is that part two of Exodus details how God takes a group of people and makes them a nation, and also shows how God dwells among them in the tabernacle. As far as dwelling among the Israelites, please don't forget God is currently making his presence with the Israelites known as he moves along with them in the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And now we will see the ways that God is transitioning to dwell in the tabernacle among them. More specifically, we will soon see in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, through chapter 24, verse 8, that at Mount Sinai, God made a specific covenant with the people of Israel, setting them apart as his chosen people in order to make his name known among all the other nations. That part, make his name known among all the other nations, does that at all remind you of our talk of Rahab's testimony to the spies in our last episode? Here's a brief refresher, but please be sure to go back to that last episode in our OBT to hear this cross-reference of stories in the Bible more fully developed. In the meantime, though, a portion of Rahab's testimony in the book of Joshua chapter 2 verse 8 reads, Before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up to the roof to talk to them. I know the Lord has given you this land, she told them. We are all afraid of you. Everyone in this land is living in terror. For we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you on the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know what you did to Shion and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. 
No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things, for the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Pretty sure this, along with many other verses in Scripture, are solid proof that God's name is known among the other nations by the time their wandering in the wilderness for 40 years comes to an end, as a new generation of Israelites prepares to take over the Promised Land. Well, more on all that to come, but for now, let's get back to our overview of Part 2 of Exodus. Aside from making His name known to other nations through this newly formed nation of Israel, God is also going to give them the law, the standard by which they were to live and worship. Overall, the setting of the second half of the book of Exodus is the wilderness, and it's in the wilderness where God teaches His people how to worship Him. God gives Israel His law, which details how His people should live out their love for God and for each other against the backdrop of their current culture, together with the plans for building God's tabernacle and the details of how to set apart His priests for service. How about before we get any further ahead of ourselves, we just go ahead and begin our reading in chapter 19, shall we? Exodus chapter 19 in the New Living Translation begins, The Lord reveals Himself at Sinai. Exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidium, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. So Moses returned from the mountain and called together the elders of the people and told them everything the Lord had commanded him. And all the people responded together. We will do everything the Lord has commanded. So Moses brought the people's answer back to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud, Moses, so the people themselves can hear me when I speak with you, and then they will always trust you. Moses told the Lord what the people had said. Then the Lord told Moses, Go down and prepare the people for my arrival. Consecrate them today and tomorrow, and have them wash their clothing. Be sure they are ready on the third day, for on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai as all the people watch. Warn the people, be careful, do not go up on the mountain or even touch its boundaries. Anyone who touches a mountain will certainly be put to death. No hand may touch a person or animal that crosses a boundary. Instead, stone them or shoot them with arrows. They must be put to death. However, when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, then the people may go up on to the mountain of the Lord. So Moses went down to the people. He consecrated them for worship and they washed their clothes. He told them, Get ready for the third day, and until then abstain from having sexual intercourse. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed, and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God thundered his reply. The Lord came down on top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain, so Moses climbed the mountain. Then the Lord told Moses, Go back down and warn the people not to break through the boundaries to see the Lord, or they will die. Even the priests who regularly come near to the Lord must purify themselves so that the Lord does not break out and destroy them. But Lord, Moses protested, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. You already warned us. You told me. Mark off a boundary all around the mountain to set it apart as holy. But the Lord said, 
Go down and bring Aaron back up with you. In the meantime, do not let the priests or the people break through to approach the Lord, or he will break out and destroy them. So Moses went down to the people and told them what the Lord had said. So God reveals himself at Mount Sinai, friends. But before we lean into that portion of our reading today, I just want to stop to highlight the fulfillment of yet another promise, our promise-keeping God made, this time to Moses. Back in Exodus chapter 3, we studied God's conversation and calling of Moses. More specifically, in verses 11 and 12 in chapter 3, it read, But Moses protested to God, Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? God answered, I will be with you, and this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. Beautiful. Just beautiful. Here we see Moses has come full circle from the burning bush to now be back to the same location at the base of Mount Sinai with a large number of Israelites who were recently brought out of Egypt. They are now in the process of preparing themselves to worship God. I just love those reminders of God's faithfulness, don't you, my OOB tears? Day 22 of First Five's How Do I Get Through This Exodus Study has this to say about fulfilled promises to Moses by God. Three months after leaving Egypt, God led the Israelites to the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in front of the mountain. This mountain was significant because it was the same location where God first appeared to Moses through the burning bush. At that time, Moses was shepherding his father-in-law's flock of sheep. Now Moses was shepherding tens of thousands of people for his heavenly father, the nation of Israel. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 9-12, through 12, we can note that God has done to fulfill his promises to bring Moses back to this mountain in several ways. Number one, God sent him to Pharaoh to lead his people out of Egypt. Number two, God promised to be with Moses. And number three, the sign that God had sent him, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. In Exodus chapter 19, God reinforced his love for his people by extending to them the proposal of his covenant. Covenant language was God's language of love and commitment. Reminding Israel of the grace and tenderness of his deliverance, in Exodus chapter 19 verse 4, he told them of his desire to make them his treasured possession among all the peoples. Other nations were known for their intellect, military might, or wealth. Israel would be known for their God, the one whose presence was evident, whose provision was abundant, and whose protection was constant. God's conditions for Israel were, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus chapter 19 verses 5 and 6. Priests had access to God. They represented the people to God and God to the people. When we compare verses 5 and 6 with 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, our role in the kingdom of God is similar to the Israelites' role 2,000 years ago. In 1 Peter, it says, We are to be God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Israel will be set apart for God and their obedience would lead to blessing. John Wesley explained, All the Israelites, if compared with other people, were priests unto God. So near were they to him, so much employed in his immediate service, with such intimate communion they had with him. Moses went up the mountain to communicate the answer of the people to God and returned with another message from God. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 10 and 11, God told Moses to go to them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. When we think of the significance of having clean clothes for this occasion, we're just reminded that God is pure and the act of washing and preparing served to get their minds and hearts ready. God also set specific boundaries around the mountains lest the people be tempted to come too near. The holiness of God was apparent and palatable to the people. The morning of the third day, 
Moses led the people out of the camp to the mountain to meet with the Lord. They heard the sounds of thunder and a loud trumpet. They saw flashes of lightning even through the thick cloud that covered the mountain. They felt the earth tremble violently beneath them. Then the Lord descended upon the mountain in fire and called Moses to come up. What an amazing day that must have been. Oh, my O.O.B. tears. We just sit a bit in this story. First, Moses climbed the mountain, which in and of itself would be quite a feat, in order to then meet with God, the same God who is going to terrify the Israelites in a bit with his presence in thunder and smoke on the mountain. What must that moment have been like for Moses? Then we have the holiness of God and Moses coming back down to speak with the Israelites about not touching the mountain until instructed to and consecrating themselves for worship. Did you also notice that little treasure tucked into verse 15 when God says, Get ready for the third day? Hidden in this reference of getting ready for the third day is some beautiful foreshadowing of Jesus' resurrection, right, my friends? On the third day. Oh, the third day. I love that. And then we have the lightning, thunder, and a dense cloud that came down on the mountain, plus a long, loud blast of a ram's horn. And then God spoke to Moses in the presence of the Israelites, for all of them to hear him talking to Moses. Can you even imagine what that moment would have been like? Are you still sitting with me in the story trying to envision all that is happening now with God's majesty and power and his presence on full display? The mountains shook violently, and so did the people. This is yet another of those moments where I feel we should not merely read the words, but actually pause to consider what this experience was like for the Israelites as they continue getting to know our God. Oof. Moving on, Exodus chapter 20 from the New Living Translation reads, Ten Commandments for the Covenant Community. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol or any kind of an image or anything in the heavens of the earth or the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. Either the sins of the parents upon their children, the entire family is affected even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them, but on the seventh day he rested. This is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Honor your father and mother. Then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God has given you. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. When the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn, and when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance, trembling with fear. And they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak directly to us or we will die. Don't be afraid, Moses answered them, for God has come in this way to test you, and so that your fear of him will keep you from sinning. As the people stood in the distance, Moses approached the dark cloud where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. You saw for yourselves that I spoke to you from heaven. Remember, you must not make any idols of silver or gold to rival me. 
Build for me an altar made of earth and offer your sacrifices to me, your burnt offerings and peace offerings, your sheep and goats, and your cattle. Build my altar wherever I cause my name to be remembered and I will come to you and bless you. If you use stones to build my altar, use only natural uncut stones. Do not shape the stones with a tool for that would make the altar unfit for holy use. And do not approach my altar by going up steps. If you do, someone might look under your clothing and see your nakedness. Okay, my tears. Before we move on to our verse study of chapter 20, listen to this I found in the Ten Words to Live By book by Jen Wilkin. The Ten Commandments are perhaps the best-known example of moral law, informing law codes into modern times. Though most people know about the Ten Words, few can actually enumerate them. One well-known survey found that while Americans struggle to recall the Ten Commandments, they can name the seven ingredients of a Big Mac. In my experience, not many Christians are able to name the Ten Commandments' ten key ingredients either. Can you name them all? Should you be able to? When the Ten Commandments are not forgotten, they are often wrongly perceived. They suffer from a PR problem. They are seen by many as obsolete utterances of a thunderous, grumpy God to a disobedient people, neither of whom seem very relatable or likable. Because we have trouble seeing any beauty in the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, forgetting them comes easily. Perhaps you've heard the statement, Christianity isn't about rules, it's about relationship. It's an idea that has enjoyed popularity in recent decades as evangelistic messages increasingly emphasized a personal relationship with God, one made possible through the grace that forgives our sins against God's law. In many ways, this approach seeks to solve the PR problems I have noted. It trades a grumpy Old Testament God of the law for the compassionate New Testament God of grace. Thus, law and grace have come to be pitted against one another as enemies, when in fact they are friends. The God of the Old Testament and the New have been placed in opposition when in fact they are one and the same. God does not change. His justice and compassion have always coexisted, and so has His grace and His law. Herein lies our forgetfulness. Rather than seeing the sin of lawlessness as a barrier to relationship with God, we have steadily grown to regard the law itself as the barrier. We have come to believe that rules prevent relationship. So is Christianity about rules, or is it about relationship? The Christian faith is absolutely about relationship, but while that faith is personal, it is also communal. We are saved into a special relationship with God, and thereby into a special relationship with other believers. Christianity is about relationship with God and others, and because this statement is true, Christianity is also unapologetically about rules, for rules show us how to live in those relationships. Rather than threaten relationship, rules enable it. We know this is true from everyday life. Imagine you are a substitute teacher at an elementary school. Which kindergarten class would you rather substitute for? The one with established and respected rules posted on the bulletin board or the one without? Rules ensure that the one in charge is honored and that those in her charge look to the interests of others as well as their own. Without rules, our hopes of healthy relationship vanish in short order. Jesus did not pit rules against relationship. It was he who said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Christians have been taught with good reason to fear legalism, attempting to earn favor through obedience to the law. Legalism is a terrible blight, and as evidenced in the example of the Pharisees. But in our zeal to avoid legalism, we have at times forgotten the many places of beauty of the law is extolled for us, both in the Old Testament and the New. Blessed, says the psalmist, is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. While legalism is a blight, Lawfulness is a blessed virtue, as evidenced in the example of Christ. We should love the law because we love Jesus and because Jesus loved the law. Contrary to common belief, the Pharisees were not lovers of the law. They were lovers of self. 
This is why Jesus says that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Legalism is external righteousness only, practiced to curry favor. Legalism is not love of the law, but is its own form of lawlessness, twisting the law for its own ends. When the scriptures condemn lawlessness, as they repeatedly and vehemently do, they condemn both the one who ignores the law and the one who embraces it for self-righteous ends. Note the words of the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The very definition of sin is rejection of law. What, then, is lawfulness? Lawfulness is Christlikeness. To obey the law is to look like Jesus Christ. While legalism builds self-righteousness, lawfulness builds righteousness. Obedience to the law is the means of sanctification for the believer. We serve the risen Christ, as it reads in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. This is the fervent hope of this book, that it will increase your zeal. There are good works to be done by the people of God, not out of dread to earn his favor, but out of delight because we already have it. That favor is our freedom, a freedom from slavery better than understood when we remember its foreshadowing many years ago in the time of the Ten Words, time of slavery of the Israelites in Egypt, and their rescue to freedom by God. Oh my, can you even believe that, my OOB tears? We are more likely to know the ingredients of a Big Mac than we are to know the Ten Words or Ten Commandments. In truth, though, my attention was captured when Jen was talking about all this, maybe in part due to my love of marketing. That advertising jingle has been stuck in my own head and can be recalled pretty easily. To all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. I guess I am one of those Americans as well. Gracious. While I could rough my way through the list of the Ten Commandments or Ten Words, it is much easier for me to rattle off the ingredients of a Big Mac. Oof. Even if it isn't the ingredients of a Big Mac for you, we could probably insert the slogan from one of the millions of other ad campaigns we've heard on repeat over the years. Right here, as much easier to remember than this list of instructions by God. Goodness. Jen also said when the Ten Commandments are not forgotten, they are often wrongly perceived. They suffer from a PR problem. She then moved on as an example of a substitute teacher preferring a kindergarten classroom with known rules in place versus one that is not. Having been a substitute teacher myself off and on over the years, that definitely struck a chord with me too. (laughs) All kidding aside though, when we talk about the Ten Words and all the other laws we're going to be learning about, not only in the coming episodes of Exodus, but also when we get to the book of Leviticus, we have to remember this point Jen made here as well. Jesus did not pit rules against relationship. It was he who said in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Maybe all these relatable elements are what drew me in here, but the bottom line of what I believe we just heard from Jen Wilkin is that we need to lean into not only knowing, but understanding these ten words in our own lives as we begin to recognize, as she said, lawfulness is Christlikeness. To obey the law is to look like Jesus Christ. I guess for me, after reading this portion for the first time, and even now as I read it once again to you all, I am realizing the importance for us to read and learn the Ten Commandments, or Ten Words, as a major framework of our faith. With that in mind, let's consider the reason for them together. The Ten Words were really important for establishing guidelines for society. It shows us that there is a right and there is a wrong, no matter what philosophies try to say to the contrary. We know this as creatures created in the image of God. We have within us this innate sense of right and wrong across all peoples and continents and cultures. 
The law here has really helped specify this for the Israelite people, and this was really good. But the law had another bigger purpose as well, and this purpose of the law we see in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, which says, Through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the law was put into place to show us our sin. In other words, we were given the standards to show us how very short we fall from the standard. No one can keep all Ten Commands perfectly. So the purpose of the law was to show us our sin, but it's even way bigger than that, because Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 says that the law was our guardian until Christ came. In other words, the end goal of the law was to point us to Jesus. Let me say that last part I said one more time, as it is so important to firmly grasp in all this talk of the law, my OOB tears. Here it is. The end goal of the law was to point us to Jesus. That's so good. Continuing on in First Five's Exodus study in a section titled The Ten Commandments, it begins, The NIV version of Exodus 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these words. Every necessary preparation was made. All the laundry was done. It had taken three days, but over two million people were consecrated and dressed in clean clothes. Holy limits were set around Mount Sinai as the people assembled in anticipation. Something extremely important was about to take place. Then, amid thunder, lightning, smoke, and a trumpet blast, the mountain began to shake and the voice of God spoke. The people were terrified. They kept their distance, but Moses moved closer. God wanted the people to see for themselves he was the one speaking from heaven. What were all these words God spoke? The Ten Commandments. The same Ten Commandments our world disregards and aims to discredit. The same Ten Commandments that our world defiantly disobeys and does not want to display. All these words are the timeless truths of God. Truths that are God's holy standard for right living. Words so important that He instructed His people to memorize them, write them down, take them to heart, post them everywhere, talk about them, and repeat them over and over again as found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6-9. through God commanded His people to diligently teach all these words to their children at every opportunity. If we are going to talk about them and diligently teach them, we have to know them. The first four deal with our relationship with God. They instruct us to trust God only, worship Him alone, use God's name in ways that honor Him, and rest on the Sabbath and think about God. The last six deal with our relationship with others. We are to respect and obey our parents, protect and respect human life, be true to our husband or wife, don't take what belongs to others, always tell the truth, and be satisfied with what we have. In giving the Ten Commandments, God gives His people very clear instructions about living a life set apart for Him. It is through these commands that God teaches us how to love Him and love others. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. Love God, love others. Now that seems easier to remember for sure, am I right, my OOB tears? She Read Truth's Exodus study devotion titled Israel at Sinai has this to say. Perhaps one of the most misunderstood aspects of the Old Testament is the law. It has been distorted and misapplied for thousands of years. It has been used to fuel self-righteousness, to depict a judgmental and unforgiving portrait of God, interpreted so narrowly and harshly that the closest adherents didn't recognize the fulfillment of the law, Jesus himself in their very midst. These misinterpretations still plague us today, so the question remains, how should we understand the law? In Exodus chapter 19, God provides Moses with the cornerstone of the law, the Ten Commandments, and he does so with these words. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. Too often we read these words as a threat or as a form of conditional love. I will only take care of you if you do what I say. However, there's another way to read these words and the commandments that follow. 
As a mom, I frequently warn my children to obey me for their own good. If you don't listen to me, you're going to get hurt. If you don't stop jumping on the bed, you're going to fall. If you don't slow down, you're going to trip. These warnings are not threats. They are not signs of conditional love. I am not manipulating them into submitting to me. Instead, I am beckoning them toward safety, wholeness, and health. I am showing them the path to life and warning them away from a path that leads to pain. This, in many ways, captures the heart of the law. And this heart becomes all the more clear in the verse that precedes God's warning. In verse 4 we read, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings as I brought you to myself. With this verse, God testifies to his own character, reminding the Israelites of his steadfast love, provision, and care. On that basis, God asked his people to trust and obey him, not because the law was an arbitrary list of rules from a cruel and exacting God, but because the law was the path to life. Too often we miss this truth, that the law is beautiful, good, and a picture of humanity at its best. The first four commandments are, in essence, the pinnacle of loving God. The following six commandments are the fullness of loving neighbor. They instruct us how to live, but more importantly, they clarify who we were created to be. And yet, the law fell short. It showed us the destination without providing the ability to reach it. We can know the good, but find ourselves wholly unable to attain it. That is why the law condemns. The law is God's blueprint for human flourishing without the tools to achieve it. Enter Jesus. He did what no human was ever able to do. He was the perfect expression of the law. His life and words were the embodiment of God's design for us. That is the point of the Ten Commandments and the whole of God's law, to point us toward God's good plan for us while revealing our inadequacy to accomplish it. The law points us to Jesus. Did you hear that, friends? The law points us to Jesus. Pretty sure we're seeing a theme developing here in our studies of OOBT. I so love that. Okay, in the interest of time today, I'm just going to highlight a few thoughts I had and perspectives I came across in my studies to provide a framework or overview of these 10 words God spoke to the Israelites, to us. But truthfully, I want to take a moment to encourage each one of you to get your hands on a copy of Jen Wilkins' 10 Words to Live By book. She takes a close look at the Ten Commandments and how they are relevant to our lives today. You can find this one by using the link in today's show notes or by searching for it wherever you like to buy books. I promise you it is worth your time, my OOB tears. As always, I wish we had more time to discuss each one in depth, but in all honesty, we could probably do one full episode for each of these ten words and not even touch the surface of their meaning and application to both the Israelites' lives and to our own lives today. Please, please, please get a copy of this resource to take a deeper dive here. If I am being completely honest here, I would like to say that I have at least one other resource that I simply ran out of time before I could fully dive into for study prep of this episode. It looks like such a good one that I may open it to study and share some of my findings at the beginning of our next episode of OOBT. I guess you'll just have to tune in next time to see if that happens. (laughs) Okay, now to that overview I mentioned. In first fives, how do I get through this Exodus study in day 23 in a devotional titled Appreciation Over Obligation? It begins with Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, from the ESV. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. After the Israelites fled Egyptian slavery and wandered in the wilderness, God himself appeared to his chosen people to lay out his laws for them. Often we learn the Ten Commandments and overlook the vital statement God made before giving these commands to the Israelites. Before God told the Israelites what he wanted them to do, he reminded them of who he was and what he had already done. The significance of God's introduction before giving His commands is twofold. First, the commands come from God and no one else. 
This set of rules is not an idea or philosophy made up by man. Understanding this is important because we're reminded why we should follow God's law. We are obligated to follow God's law because He is Lord and ruler over all. As a creator, He has a right to make laws and expect them to be followed. Second, God reminded the Israelites that He is the God who brought them out of Egypt. Although God made the law, He does not force anyone to follow His rules. He reminded the Israelites of the faithfulness He has already shown them by freeing them from Egyptian slavery. Not only did He have the authority to give the law, but He was also worthy of their obedience. Too often we view God's rules from a place of obligation only, and not with a sincere, thankful response to God's faithfulness. God has not given us moral laws to control us, but to show us the holiness of God, Romans chapter 7, verse 12, and to show us that we fall short, Romans chapter 7, verse 7. The law was there as a guardian to protect us until Christ came, Galatians 3, 24, and set us free, just like he set the Israelites free from slavery. When we approach God's law with a mindset of what we can't do instead of what we're free from, we become discouraged and skeptical of God. God's law is given not to oppress us, but to show us our need for Christ, who alone can set us free. The truth is, God does not need our obedience. We do. The Israelites were saved from Egypt to remind them that God was worthy of their obedience. We have the sacrifice of Jesus to remind us of God's worthiness as well. Although none of us can perfectly follow the law, Jesus came to fulfill the law in order that we may be saved. Those who place their faith in Jesus now have the power of the Holy Spirit to live as God desires, not from a place of obligation, but from love and appreciation. Although we commonly learn about the Ten Commandments, there were hundreds of commands in the Old Testament for the Israelites to follow. As we previously read in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40, Jesus taught that all the law is fulfilled when we love God and others. Jesus also lived out the law entirely. God has not just given us the law. He's lived it for us. Moving on in day 24 of the first five's How Do I Get Through This Study in Exodus, it begins, According to Exodus chapter 20, verse 18, the people of God, recognizing His mighty power and majesty, were overwhelmed with fear. Before hearing the words spoken by God, they had been tempted to come too close to the mountain. But after all they had seen and heard, they backed away in fear. According to verse 19, they requested this of Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but don't let God speak directly to us, or we will die. They had seen God's power and trembled with fear in His presence, and they were begging Moses to stand between them and God. Seeing their withdrawal, Moses said, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. Exodus chapter 20, verse 20. The two words fear used in verse 20 are two different words in Hebrew. The word fear in the first phrase means to be afraid. Moses used this exact same word in Exodus chapter 14, verse 13, when he said, Don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. If you recall, they were afraid in Exodus chapter 14, 13 because the Egyptians and Pharaoh were pursuing them to take them back into slavery. God parted the Red Sea in rescue. The Hebrew word for fear in the phrase that the fear of him may be before you can also mean reverence. To rephrase Moses' words in Exodus 20, 20, Don't be afraid of God but revere Him, be in awe of who He is, for as you revere Him, your heart will also turn away from sin. The Hebrew word for fear, to revere, is also used in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible gives insight to Moses' words to Israel here. It reads, The foundation of knowledge is the fear of the Lord, to honor, to respect Him, to live in awe of His power, and to obey His word. The people backed away, but Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was, Exodus chapter 20, verse 21. 
What do you imagine the people were thinking as they saw Moses go into the thick darkness? Were they thinking of the bravery of Moses, or were they thinking that he might not survive? The difference between the people of Israel and Moses was that Moses chose faith over fear. Moses knew that he could trust God, and he was ready to listen to his voice, obey his commands, and be his spokesman. Why did Moses draw near? Because Moses knew God. The Lord had taken Moses from the comfort of the royal throne room of Egypt to the chaos of leading a wandering band of slaves in the desert. Exodus chapter 33, 11 will tell us that God spoke to Moses as a man speaks to a friend. Listening, trusting, and obeying were woven into the fabric of Moses' relationship with God. God desires to have that same relationship with us, which begins when we place faith in Jesus Christ. God tells us, If you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13. As we seek more of God's presence through our relationship with Jesus Christ, listening to Him as He speaks through His Word, trusting and obeying Him, we develop that relationship with Him. It is in leaving our wrong ideas about God at the foot of the mountain and drawing near to Him that we come to know Him. And it is in choosing to fulfill His will by trusting in Christ that we are truly fulfilled. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. John chapter 14, verse 1. Okay, let's just move right from those thoughts to now read Exodus chapter 21 from the New Living Translation. It begins, Fair treatment of slaves. These are the regulations you must present to Israel. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he may serve for no more than six years, set him free in the seventh year, and he will owe you nothing for his freedom. If he is single when he becomes your slave, he shall leave single. But if he was married before he became a slave, then his wife must be freed with him. If his master gave him a wife while he was a slave and they had sons or daughters, then only the man will be free in the seventh year. But his wife and children will still belong to the master. But the slave may declare, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I don't want to go free. If he does this, his master must present him before God. Then the master must take him to the door or doorpost and publicly pierce his ear with an awl. After that, the slave will serve his master for life. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she will not be freed at the end of the six years as the men are. If she does not satisfy her owner, he must allow her to be bought back again. But he is not allowed to sell her to foreigners since he is the one who broke the contract with her. But if the slave's owner arranges for her to marry a son, he may no longer treat her as a slave but as a daughter. If a man who has married a slave wife takes another wife for himself, he must not neglect the rights of the first wife to food, clothing, and sexual intimacy. If he fails in any of these three obligations, she may leave as a free woman without making any payment. Cases of Personal Injury Anyone who assaults and kills another person must be put to death. But if it was simply an accident permitted by God, I will appoint a place of refuge where the slayer can run for safety. However, if someone deliberately kills another person, then the slayer must be dragged even from my altar and be put to death. Anyone who strikes father or mother must be put to death. Kidnappers must be put to death, whether they are caught in possession of their victims or have already sold them as slaves. Anyone who dishonors father or mother must be put to death. Now suppose two men quarrel, and one hits the other with a stone or fist, and the injured person does not die, but is confined to a bed. If he is later able to walk outside again, even with the crutch, the assailant will not be punished, but must compensate his victim for lost wages and provide for his full recovery. If a man beats his male or female slave with a club, and the slave dies as a result, the owner must be punished. But if the slave recovers within a day or two, then the owner shall not be punished, since the slave is his property. Now suppose two men are fighting, and in the process they accidentally strike a pregnant woman, so she gives birth prematurely. If no further injury results, the man who struck the woman must pay the amount of compensation the woman's husband demands, and the judges approve. 
but if there is further injury, the punishment must match the injury. A life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise. If a man hits his male or female slave in the eye and the eye is blinded, he must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. And if a man knocks out the tooth of his male or female slave, he must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. If an ox gores a man or woman to death, the ox must be stoned, and its flesh may not be eaten. In such a case, however, the owner will not be held liable. But suppose the ox had a reputation for goring and the owner had been informed but failed to keep it under control. If the ox then kills someone, it must be stoned and the owner must also be put to death. However, the dead person's relatives may accept payment to compensate for the loss of life. The owner of the ox may redeem his life by paying whatever is demanded. The same regulation applies if the ox gores a boy or a girl. But if the ox gores a slave, either male or female, the animal's owner must pay the slave owner's 30 silver coins and the ox must be stoned. Suppose someone digs or uncovers a pit and fails to cover it, and then an ox or a donkey falls into it. The owner of the pit must pay full compensation to the owner of the animal, but then he gets to keep the dead animal. If someone's ox injures a neighbor's ox and the injured ox dies, then the two owners must sell the live ox and divide the price equally between them. They must also divide the dead animal. But if the ox had a reputation for goring, yet its owner failed to keep it under control, he must pay full compensation, a live ox, for a dead one. But he may keep the dead ox. Okay, my OB tears, before we move forward any further in our studies of this chapter, I just want to point out the title of the section as we read it from the NLT, Fair Treatment of Slaves. Remember the Israelites are themselves coming out of slavery, and they were most definitely not treated fairly in Egypt. How tender of God to not only give them the ten words and then these additional laws here, plus a whole other book of laws to come in the book of Leviticus to help them navigate a life of newly found freedom. Unlearning the chaos and hardship of Egyptian slavery and instead the freedom and a very new way to treat one another as detailed by God. And also remember what we read back in Exodus chapter 18 with Jethro's advice that Moses put into action beginning in verse 17. This is not good, Moses' father-in-law exclaimed. You're going to wear yourself out and the people too. This job is too heavy a burden for you to handle all by yourself. Now listen to me and let me give you a word of advice and may God be with you. You should continue to be the people's representative before God, bringing their disputes to Him. Teach them God's decrees and give them His instructions. Show them how to conduct their lives. But select from all the people some capable, honest men who fear God and hate bribes. Appoint them as leaders over groups of 1,150 and 10. They should always be available to solve the people's common disputes. But have them bring the major cases to you. Let the leaders decide the smaller matters themselves. They will help you carry the load, making the task easier for you. If you follow this advice, and if God commands you to do so, then you'll be able to endure the pressures, and all of the people will go home in peace. Moses listened to his father-in-law's advice and followed his suggestions. He chose capable men from all over Israel and appointed them as leaders over the people. He put them in charge of groups of 1,150 and 10. These men were always available to solve the people's common disputes. They brought the major cases to Moses, but they took care of the smaller matters themselves. This is only the beginning of God giving His laws to the Israelites, a basis to start from for the judges that Moses was to assign to help him resolve conflict among the people, to have a framework to make the rulings from. Just one more example of God not calling the equipped, but instead equipping the called. This time it was Moses and the appointed judges. Moving on, in a section called God Expands on the Ten Commandments, in the first five Exodus study, it reads, in Exodus chapter 20, God laid down the law, the Ten Commandments, at Mount Sinai. 
We pick up today with God pulling Moses back into the thick darkness still surrounding Mount Sinai to reveal a new body of law that expanded on the Ten Commandments. It was through this law that God would govern His people. This law would enable the Israelites to live in their newly found freedom with clear expectations and consequences. Each law would provide greater specifics to the general law just established in the Ten Commandments. How I appreciate that God did not leave His chosen people wondering how to live out the thou shall nots. Instead, He wrapped a moral framework around them by which they could measure their behavior. God expanded on the Ten Commandments by giving practical examples and providing insight into their meaning. The new laws revealed God's moral character, laid out God's expectations for His people, set a framework for how to live in freedom and how to receive His blessings. And it was a mutual covenant. If the people obeyed, God's blessings followed. But if not, the appropriate punishment followed. Yet, the discipline was reasonable and fair because God had clearly identified right and wrong behavior. As we unfold these laws in the next few chapters, we will discover that God intended these laws for freedom, not condemnation. He issued punishments not to oppress or lord His power over people. Rather, He set boundaries with consequences to teach them the importance and benefit of living in the image of the One who created them. These laws would also help them see their need for forgiveness and draw them back to God when they stumbled. Later, in Exodus chapter 21, verses 23 through 24, Moses sets forth the law of retaliation. We know it as an eye for an eye. It's a law that says we should do unto others as they do unto us, so they will never do it again. Is God telling us that whenever we are hurt by another that we should retaliate and do the same to them? Well, yes and no. God carefully crafted these laws to accomplish His purposes. Through them, He affirmed the dignity and equality of human life, because His people were created in His image. And He affirmed the priority of human life, because He established that men and women were more valuable than property. Consequently. To protect human life, he set forth laws that ensured the punishment fit the crime. Jesus in the New Testament went a step further. Matthew states in chapter 5, verses 38 and 39, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Jesus changed the standard. He set the bar higher for when someone attacks or hurts us. His new standard seems impossible, doesn't it? But it's not because our Savior never calls us to something without equipping us. Jesus gifted us with the power of the Holy Spirit to live out this new perspective on the law. So the next time someone hurts you, instead of jumping to retaliation, try this. Stop, drop, and pray. Pause to consider the grace and mercy God extended to you and do the same in the life of another. I also discovered in my studies of verses 24 and 25 this footnote in the New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible. The eye-for-an-eye rule was instituted as a guide for judges, not as a rule for personal relationships or to justify revenge. This rule made the punishment fit the crime, thereby preventing the cruel and barbaric punishments that characterize many ancient countries. Jesus used this principle to teach us to not retaliate in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38-48. through 48. Judges, parents, teachers, and others who work with people must make wise decisions in order for discipline to be effective. A punishment too harsh is unfair, and one too lenient is powerless to teach. Ask God for wisdom before you judge. I also found this footnote that I felt was pretty helpful in trying to understand what's happening here. This part of the covenant code is structured as case law, discussing possible scenarios and their legal consequences. The scenarios are structured as if-then statements and cover a wide range of topics, including slavery, assault, capital crimes, and offenses related to property. They are not a collection of picky laws, but a case studies of God's principles in action. God was taking potential situations and showing how His laws would work in the Israelites' everyday lives. 
These case studies had several objectives. One, to protect the nation. Two, to organize the nation. And three, to focus the nation's attention on God. The laws listed here do not cover every possible situation, but give practical examples that make it easier to decide what God wants. Moving on, in She Reads Truth's Exodus study, in a section titled Moses Receives Additional Laws, it begins, I know every word of the Bible is inspired. I know it's all useful for teaching and righteousness. But what is happening in this passage, in chapter 21? These rules don't make any sense, and they make me mad. Did you read the one about making provision for what to do if you hit your slave and knock her down? If she can get up after two days, it's no problem because she is your property. Exodus 21, 21. Are you kidding me? I feel like I don't even know where to start. But I think that's exactly how I can get a sense for the justice in these laws. They are a start, a beginning. In Exodus, God's people had just escaped the unbearable cruelty of their Egyptian masters. So for them, a start was to begin by treating each other with more justice and mercy than they had received at the hands of the Egyptians, to give an individual human life value. In Egypt, they were beaten with no recourse and no accountability. Contrast this lawless and brutal reality with the order we see in the laws in Exodus. Under these new laws, there were consequences for loss of life and destruction of property. And these laws introduced the basic a life-for-a-life concept, which is the cornerstone of ancient justice. It's tempting for my personal sense of justice to be the primary lens through which I read these rules. But God is compassionate and gracious and abounding in faithful love, Psalm 103, verse 8. So while it's hard for me to understand why these laws don't fit my idea of perfect justice, it helps me to look at what Jesus said to his friends about the law. When Jesus' disciples tried to interpret the law, to distill all the rules into one basic idea, they asked him, Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Jesus responded with this simple, beautiful, and uniting command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. And though these ancient civil laws of Israel may strike us as strange and even upsetting, we can see that the center of them was this. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. Truthfully here, while I do understand where the author of this devotional from She Reads Truth Exodus study is coming from in her frustration in some of the laws that do not make sense to us, I'm also reminded of this absolutely vital truth that we must cling to when reading scripture. This was written for them and for then, which means, as we've already discussed, these laws apply to the culture and the day and the time of the Israelites first coming out of slavery of their own in Egypt. They had never been allowed to rule over anything in their lives and were just now getting a taste of freedom and all that comes with it. These laws help them to see life from a different perspective, and we absolutely must be careful and certainly avoid taking what God deemed valuable for them to know and live by in their time and trying to directly apply it to our lives today. And that is also why Jesus' words in the New Testament, they are crucial to our own application as those living after Jesus' finished work on the cross. I am guessing this is a point we'll revisit often in the coming episodes. As we are closing out our time today, I want to encourage us to spend some time in worship, just as the Israelites did at the base of Mount Sinai. You'll find a link in the show notes for a song titled Egypt by Corey Asbury. I love how this one connects all God did in rescuing the Israelites to all he has done to rescue us. Here's a portion of the lyrics, but I so hope that you will go to the show notes or do a search to find this one to spend some time in worship to our God who takes our hands to lead us out of our own Egypt to freedom. The lyrics begin, I won't forget the wonder of how you brought deliverance, the exodus of my heart, because you found me, you freed me, held back the waters for my release. 
O Yahweh, you're the God who fights for me, Lord of every victory. Hallelujah, hallelujah. You have torn apart the sea, you have led me through the deep. Hallelujah, hallelujah. O the cloud by day is a sign that you are with me. The fire by night is the guiding light to my feet. Because you found me, you freed me, held back the waters for my release. O Yahweh, you stepped into my Egypt and you took me by the hand and you marched me out in freedom into the promised land. And now I will not forget you, no, I'll sing of all you've done. Death is swallowed up forever by the fury of your love. Beautiful, simply beautiful. Amen and amen, am I right, my friends? Okay, we've officially made it to the end of today's episode in our study of the book of Exodus. I'm incredibly grateful, humbled, and truthfully absolutely thrilled that you're still here with me as we study through the pages of God's Word together, that you made it to the end of more chapters of study and another episode with me. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening to this episode today. If you like this one, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next one. I hope you will also consider leaving a review and sharing it with a friend or two. In all honesty, though, aside from personally sharing the show link with your friends and family, rating and reviewing the show is truly the best way to help others find out about our study times together. I so hope you will do one or even both, and for that, I thank you in advance, my OOB tears. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.